Welcome to Let's Talk Family Law, a podcast focusing on all aspects of family law. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. I want to welcome everybody to the Weber Gallagher Family Law Group podcast. My name is Carolyn Moraboli, and I'm the managing partner of the Family Law Group. If you've been listening to our prior podcasts, uh, we've been giving you updates. And as you may well know now, the courts have resumed business as of June 1st. Although we are working remotely, we are still able to service our clients' needs, and we are getting back to full business um, as, as the courts are opening. If you have any issues or you need to discuss anything that we'll be raising in the podcast, uh, you may contact the Family Law Group at 610-272-5555. Today we have a guest speaker. Her name is Donna Peranti. Uh, she is a tax and forensic accounting expert. Her offices are located in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and she has been qualified as an expert to testify in cases um, in the five county area. Donna has testified as an expert in many uh, cases before the court as well as in private arbitrations. Today we're going to be focusing our podcast on post um, the tax, actually the tax topics. Um, Donna has a lot of information as to some recent acts which have been passed and she's going to identify them for us. So Donna, would you like to first start in identifying um, some new things that have passed regarding the tax reform? Sure. So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed in 2017, but there has been quite a bit of activity since then. The Setting Every Community Up for Retirement, or the SECURE Act, uh, passed at the end of 2019, and that focuses a lot on, on retirement issues. And then there was also the Taxpayer Certainty Tax Relief Act of 2019, which is also known as the Disaster Act, which focuses on a lot on disaster items, but also corrects a lot of issues that was, were in the TCJA that needed to be fixed. Um, and then also, as everybody knows, the CARES Act relating to COVID. Uh, there's been a lot of changes with that as well. You mentioned the retirement issues. Can you tell us about some of the tax issues and changes that, have, um, that will affect retirement? Sure. So there's, there's changes that have related to plans, age changes, and withdrawal issues. Um, first, uh, there's been a lot of uh, changes for plan coverage, especially for small companies. So if you're either working at a small company or running a small company, you may want to address these issues to try to get a plan started at your firm if you don't have one. There's a lot of credits for small businesses that are starting up a plan. And also, um, a lot of the plans are more forgiving uh, with the rules. They're not, they're not as strict for some of these smaller companies. So definitely something that you want to talk with your accountant or your financial advisor or both uh, to try to get something started because um, you, you only have a short period of time to save for retirement. It gets here before you know it. And the sooner you start, the better off everybody is. Um, so that's definitely something that people should be looking into. Um, as for age-related changes, uh, there are actually two. One relates to contributions and one relates to withdrawals. Um, so it used to be that the rules were that it, you couldn't contribute to an IRA after 70 and a half. 
Um, but now they've changed it that as long as you have income that can offset that meets the rules, you can continue to contribute to an IRA, which is good news for those who are still continuing to work after 70 and a half. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are working beyond that. Um, actually, one of my staff members is in her 70s. Um, so, you know, these, these people want to stay active and it's important that they contribute contribute to the future if they're planning, you know, to live much longer and uh, may need the money in the future for retirement. Also, um, as for distributions, it used to be that you had to take your required minimum distribution um, on April 1st after the year you turned 70 and a half. Um, they've changed that to be 72 now, which is also a sign of the times that more people are retiring later. I still think 72 is pretty young, um, but that, that's what they've changed it to. Um, the other rules relate to withdrawals, um, and one of the most important one is probably the CARES Act one, which just came out, which basically says that individuals do not have to take their RMDs this year. And I was, I, at first I was kind of like, why are they doing this? It doesn't make any sense. Why would they would not want people to take their RMDs? You know, people, people are struggling right now. But what it relates to is the fact that the market has dropped so much, your RMD is based on the value of your retirement at December 31st. So if you are taking your RMD that's based on a much higher value of your account, if you take out your RMD, you're gonna lose a lot of value. So what they decided to do was say, you don't have to take your RMD, let it sit, let it regrow. And if you have taken it, you have 60 days to put it back. Um, so I think this was very important for letting people um, recharge their retirement and not lo lose a lot of value by having them be required to take the RMD this year. So I thought that that was a really good change that they, they put in place um, right after this all started. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's great to know that uh, um, some of these some of these new acts are really, they've just occurred in the last couple of months based on the circumstances that are happening right now. And it might be refreshing for someone who's in, just started to retire to know that they don't have to take their required distribution or that they have other options now. Yeah, and your account could have dropped significantly. It could be, could be several RMDs worth of dropping. So by letting, you know, the account rebound, I think is, is, it's important and, you know, it helps the economy too. And if you don't really need your RMD, you have other sources, social security, et cetera. I think it was important that they let, you said, and it's up to you, you can take your RMD if you want to. Right. So a couple other um, uh, issues on reti um, retirements that has come up is a lot of people take borrowings from their um, retirement in times of need, um, which I've, I've had a lot of questions on it now, and you do have to pay a penalty if you take it out early and taxes. Um, but one rule that did change that if you take out an RMD of up to $5,000 for adoption um, or childbirth, uh, you do not have to pay the penalty. You still have to pay the taxes, but you don't have to pay the penalty. And also what they did away with was credit card loans. Used to be that they'd send, you'd ask for a loan on your retirement. They'd send you a credit card and you could spend it any way you want. And they got rid of this because the point is that you're not supposed to just be able to spend it on whatever you want. Usually someone who needs to borrow from their retirement really should have a need for something specific. So it's really important um, that you know you take care of before you take a huge withdrawal from your retirement. Right, that's that's a, some good information as well, uh, especially people who might need some cash flow right now. What are other ways 
during this time that we can avoid the 10% penalty for an IRA withdrawal if we need the cash? So probably the most important right now is there's a, a lot of people on unemployment. And if you've been on unemployment for 12 weeks at least, then you can take um, a distribution from your IRA to pay for health insurance. So if you take out the distribution and you pay into health insurance, you still have to pay taxes on the withdrawal, but you don't have to pay the 10% penalty. And there's a form that you need to fill out um, to go with your tax return saying what you use the funds for um, if you want the, to, to avoid the penalty. So um, as long as you, you know, can prove that you used it for your health insurance and you're, that you're on unemployment, then you would be able to avoid this 10% penalty. Well, you mentioned unemployment, and that's a very hot topic right now. A lot of individuals have to go on unemployment. Is this, a ta is this taxable, and can it be used for your net income available for support? So unemployment is taxable for federal purposes, and a lot of people, um, you have a choice when you get unemployment, whether you want withholdings or not. And some people say no, which ends up um, hurting them later because they're going to owe this, the taxes on this. So definitely, you know, it's something that they should be putting aside if they didn't have the withholdings. And um, if you're having the withholdings, it may not be enough. So you may want to be careful about that, too, that you still may owe a little bit, but it just won't be as much. For state purposes, uh, most states do not tax unemployment. Uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania particularly do not. Um, so it's, it's basically, you know, free money in the state and um, it, it helps, you know, to keep the economy going and, and having them be able to spend the whole thing rather than paying taxes on it. As for net income available for support, it's, it's funny because when you're looking at um, calculations for support, sometimes you throw out non-recurring items. You say, you know, well, they're not going to have this again, so it shouldn't count. But in my eyes, this is replacement. This is income that you would have had if things had been going okay and you would have had income. So to me, it should be counted. Um, it becomes a problem later if the job you got after this isn't up to the same amount as what you were getting on unemployment. But then you just smooth it out and you use what is the correct amount going forward. Um, but definitely, I think, I think unemployment should be included because it's replacement income in this situation. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot of questions on that issue moving forward and whether or not when people will be returning to work, how, um, how that may also have an impact on their earning capacity. And this leads into other benefits that have come out of the CARES Act. What have you seen regarding stimulus checks? Oh, the stimulus checks are a mess. <laughs> That's what I've definitely seen. Um, so basically, it's a 2020 credit. Um, this is according to the IRS that it's 2020 credit. So that'll be on your tax return for 2020. But it was based on 2019 income. But the problem one was with the tax deadline changes, a lot of people didn't file their 2019 tax return. So if you hadn't filed your 2019 tax return, the credit was based on 2018's tax return. Well, this has caused a lot of problems um, on many levels. First, um, there's been a lot of deceased people who have received stimulus checks. Um, and then also the wrong parent has received child um, credit support checks. Um, so it, it's become a major problem because now they are not issuing checks, but they're issuing debit cards, which are being thrown away and lost as well. So I think the whole process with this has been a bit of a mess. Um, 
they do plan to do a true up on the tax return in 2020, but the true up is for those who should have received it will get it, but for those who were paid that shouldn't have gotten it won't have to pay it back according to all the rules right now. Um, the, the biggest issue are going to be people who are divorcing because with a child that's already received, been for a parent who has already received the child's amount, the IRS isn't going to say, oh, well, you shouldn't have received it. Your, your spouse should have received it. So we're going to pay the spouse again. Um, they're not going to do that. So there's going to have to be some sort of true up on ED or between the parties, which could get challenging for, for um, the attorneys and everybody involved. Um, the other thing I've seen is that the stimulus check has been being seized for back child support. Uh, they can't really do that with a debit card, but they definitely were doing that when the deposits were being made into bank accounts. Yeah, they, I've heard that too from clients that this was going on. Um, and just like dealing with the stimulus checks, we also have the PPP and EIDL loans and business credits. And, you know, what effect this is going to have on um, either just individuals or family law cases as well. Yeah, these, these are a bit of a mess too. <laughs> these, uh, the rules are constantly changing, particularly for the PPP loans um, on whether there's forgiveness or not. Um, I did a calculation for the forgiveness for one of my um, Schedule C uh, people who's just a sole practitioner. And it turns out um, it, part of it wouldn't be forgiven because he didn't meet the 75%. Um, and now they've changed that to be that, you know, the payroll doesn't have to be 75%, it's now 60%. But definitely, if you've received these loans, you should talk to your accountant and make sure that you're doing the correct um, allocations and making sure that you're tracking this correctly so you do get the forgiveness on the PPP loan. It's really important. And especially with the rules, continuing changes, I mean, more clarification came out on Monday and I'm sure there's more to come. Um, as far as you know, how these should be treated going forward, um, definitely the PPP loan, if you get forgiveness, this, even though it's not taxable, it should be counted as income. For, so for net income available for support um, and also for business valuation purposes, it needs to be looked at. Um, and any of the expenses that aren't going to be able to be deducted because of these, these loans need to be looked at as well. Um, it's definitely going to have to be a case-by-case -case basis. There's not going to be a, a true rule for every business, um, but there's going to be argument over whether, you know, this, again, is this recurring or not recurring, um, but definitely it, it needs to be looked at because it's going to change the scope of the business. And we've, we've seen a lot of petitions to modify during this time period, especially when the governor ordered all non-essential businesses to close. And of course, those businesses had to make applications for some form of um, financial security to keep the business alive or to keep it going or to pay their employees. And you know, now it almost seems like, well, they received the income and should they be penalized because they tried to keep their, their business alive. So it's going to have an interesting impact on support cases where the modifications are just now getting scheduled and being heard. And as you said, it's changing every day, including I believe there's gonna be another package that may get passed by Congress very soon on another, another financial package, which may, be, which may be passed as businesses begin to open. Yeah, that's the, they, they're calling that the HEROES Act. 
Um, and, and it's, it's true. Like once they, this money, um, is used up the, this round, you know, if they don't really have their business steadily moving along, are they going to be able to survive? I mean, even though they survived during this maybe two month period, they may not survive the next six months. So it's, it's definitely still very rocky territory to come. Uh, right now, what are you seeing in the area of dealing with tax authorities like the IRS, Philadelphia, and Pennsylvania in either the filing of tax returns or any information regarding upcoming taxes? So for sure, they're, all the tax authorities are backed up. Uh, they are have, struggling with getting mail open. Um, I mailed something to them February 3rd. Uh, before this all happened, and they still have not processed it and don't even have it in their system that they received it. Um, so it definitely, and, and when I called about it, I did finally get somebody. I was on hold for not, not as long as I thought I would be, but I was on hold. Um, they basically said that if I was lucky, it would be processed by July. So there's definitely a backup with paper, but there's always a backup with paper with all of these authorities. But this is particularly um, bad because what I filed in February affects 2019 and they rejected the 2019 return because they didn't have this other information. So it becomes a bit circular that it makes a bit of a mess because they're not processing paper that's coming their way. Um, they do have, um, a Phil Pennsylvania has a online service that you can ask questions, uh, like generic questions like, is this a particular item sales taxable, like things like that. And they're pretty good about getting back to you within a couple days. Um, and you can also book an appointment with Pennsylvania for them to call you back. It takes about a week and a half for them to call you back. The problem is it's not identified when they call you back on the phone. So you can very easily think that it's a you know spam call or something and not pick it up. Um, right. But they do call, they called me back at the exact time that they said they were going to. Um, and they're, you know, they, were on target with what they needed to, that said they were going to do during the call. So that was pretty good. I do see that in the last week or so, um, they've definitely been picking up the phone more. Um, so maybe more things are getting resolved. But as I said, if they haven't processed the paper of what you're calling about, you're not gonna get anywhere on the calls. But definitely uh, they are um, you know, getting more staff and getting, trying to get the backed up um, processes back on running smoothly. It sounds like there's going to be um, a lot of revisions, review, and changes over the next few months, and certainly a lot, well, a lot of uncertainty as to how things will progress. Now, as either self-employed people, um, you know, they have to make estimates and payment deadlines. How are those quarterly estimates being dealt with right now? So most most states. Um, deferred their quarterly estimates and their tax returns due, just like the federal government did. So all, most federal and state um, payment deadlines in quarter one and quarter two are due July 15th. Um, there's a few like New York, New York's estimates are still due on the dates that they were supposed to be due. Um, but uh, everybody else kind of followed along the federal of July 15th. Um, so you're going to have a lot, if you had, if you had a really good 2019, you're going to have a lot due um, come July, not only probably for prior year taxes due, but your quarterlies, your quarterlies are based on, to be safe harbor, they're 110% of your prior year tax or 90% of your current year tax. So 
anybody that's now having a bad year doesn't want to base their tax estimates on last year. It makes it very um, difficult to come up with that money. So you can look at quarter one and quarter two together um, and uh, you know, do a calculation based on that instead so that you're not paying you know, way more than you need to. Um, so I definitely think that people should look at their quarter one and quarter two and kind of combine it and see what they really owe versus, you know, looking at them each individually or trying to pay the safe harbor. Uh, if they've definitely had a much worse um, first six months, they definitely want to look at what the actual income is. And it certainly sounds like that you should be keeping in contact with your accountant as these changes are made so that you can be prepared and perhaps not procrastinate so that um, you're ready to go when the time periods come up. I guess my other concern is we saw the tax return change in, I guess initially it was uh, 2019 or a 2000, was it 2018? And then they yep. changed it again, 2019. What do you think is gonna happen for 2020? Well, there's definitely gonna be some new forms with the credits for the payroll credits and for the stimulus credit. Um, the, the interesting thing was that, you know, they had changed for 2018 because they wanted to make it a postcard. So they made, did a lot of changes on 18's return. Well, with 19, you saw a lot of the lines come back that were eliminated in 18. So um, it was more of a cross between 18 and 17's return. I think even more is probably going to be appearing on the return in 2020. Um, so, I, you know, I think having a extra schedules, which they've done in 2019, doesn't necessarily help things. Um, and, and obviously with all these new tax changes too, you know, things aren't getting simpler. They're definitely getting more confusing for people. It's hard to keep up with, you know, what the rule is this year versus what it was last year. And, you know, what it's going to be next year could be different too. So there's definitely been a lot of um, changes and I think the, the tax forms could keep changing. In family net law, we know that alimony uh, tax issues had changed and we still had not received any information about how that specifically would work on modifications. Uh, anything new uh, or can you clarify anything with respect to modifications and alimony? Well, for sure on 2019's tax return, they're asking us for dates um, as preparers. So if you have to put the line item of alimony received or alimony uh, deduction, you need to put the date of the um, uh, agreement. So that needs to be reported. Um, so they're, they're trying to cut down on people not following the rules correctly. But as for the, the thing with modifications was there's, there's two types of modifications. There's modifications of an agreement an official uh, divorce decree, and there's modifications of a temporary order. The, I think the modifications of an agreement are pretty clear. You know, you follow what was done in the initial agreement, um, unless you agree to either change, to change the rules to the new tax, tax way. Um, but for temporary orders, there are two um, schools. One believes that you can change a temporary order, and the other believes you can't to change the tax rules. Um, I certainly think you can change it. Um, and it really it's 50-50. Every, every accountant and official, if you get them in a room, I think it would come up pretty 50-50 on who, what the people think can be changed. Um, but I don't think you're gonna know the answer for sure until we start seeing um, some of these tax um, 
deductions and income get challenged. And I don't know how soon that's going to be with the IRS, you know, still trying to catch up on other things. I'm not sure alimony right now is their target. Right. It might not be a priority right now in dealing with the alimony issues. And interestingly, the IRS had changed the rule regarding taxability of alimony because it was leading to a lot of audits. And now it seems like this has created even more audits because if you go to one domestic relations office in one county, you know, they feel a modification might say that, oh no, it's changed now and it's taxable. Um, and so they change the calculations with respect to how alimony needs to get looked at. And then you go to another county and they say, well, it's not taxable. So now let's look what the, uh, the alimony will, um, the alimony should be. Uh, so interestingly, I think their tax reform turned into what may be more audits in the future once the IRS ever catches up from, you know, this disaster. Agreed. And, and some, some people may be, you know, if they're looking at their modification, they may be saying, oh, it changed. It did change to the new one. I'm deducting it. And the other person says, oh, uh, you know, it's, it's now non-taxable to me. I'm not putting it on as income. So I definitely think there's going to be, there's, there's going to be even more or as many as there was before of mismatched alimony income and deduction on these people's tax returns. I agree. And another issue that keeps coming up as we write property settlement agreements are the taxable taxability deductions relating to dependency exemptions. And this is a continuing question along with the tax credits, the child tax credit. Can you explain uh, that situation? Yes, definitely. This is, comes up a lot. I get a, I get a lot of questions on this and I you know, get a lot of pushback on this. But I think the, the IRS is pretty clear on the issue. So there's, there are dependency exemptions, but the biggest thing is there's a definition of what a dependent is. And what a dependent is can carry over to multiple credits. There's the dependent care credit. You can get the head of household when you have a dependent. Um, you can get the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, and you could get the dependency exemption, which as most people know, was eliminated, but could come back in 2025. So the actual definition of dependent goes to all these different credits, but they're not all relying on each other. They're just relying on a definition. So because of the fact that the dependency exemption has been eliminated, um, you know, people still feel maybe they should write something in their agreements about it or not, depending on how old the kids are, which to some degree I agree with, because if your kids, if they're in college, then I wouldn't worry about it. But if they're little kids, this may come back. So you may want to at least address it. So you make sure that it comes up later. But the biggest issue um, comes up because of the form 8332, which always allowed you to allocate a dependency exemption from one party to the other or and it also allowed you to allocate the child tax credit so those are the only two credits the the dependency exemption which really isn't a credit but the dependency exemption and the child tax credit you could transfer between spouses it didn't rely on anything except the fact that the person who had the dependent could could push it to the other party and you could come up with an agreement, a legal agreement, to transfer it between the two. So you'd fill out this form every year. Those are the only two items that can be transferred with Form 8332. And even at the top of Form 8332, it says that. So you can't transfer head of household status, the earned income credit, or dependent care credits 
between the parties, only the other two items. So now with the dependency exemption gone, 8332 only really applies to the child tax credit. I get so many questions regarding head of household and it really comes down to the overnights and custody. So what I always ask is who had the most custody? And usually said, oh, the agreement says 60-40. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're the 60% party, did you really have the most overnights? Even though this agreement says 60, I'm assuming you did, but did you? Yeah, yeah, we followed it to the T. You know, we de I definitely had the 60%. So, okay, you get had a household. But the 40% person, he comes in and says, you know, I, I have 40%, but we agreed to allocate uh, every other year that you know, I'll get head of household anyway, even though I only have 40%. Well, did you have the most overnights? No, 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 I only have 40% custody. Well, you can't be head of household. So it really comes down to, I look at what the agreement says, so clearly whatever the custody is, but then we also look at really what the overnights are. So in a legal agreement, it could say that you're allocating the head of household to you know, each year, but unless you, know, you actually meet the IRS rules, you cannot do this. It doesn't matter what the agreement says. It's only what the IRS rules say. And I got a lot of pushback on this. And it's um, definitely different for divorce parties. Um, I forget what the publication is, but there's a publication that definitely clearly states, you know, what, what the rules are for divorcing parties. So um, if you have 50-50 custody, you really should be keeping track of the overnights. I mean, you should be keeping track of the overnights anyway. But um, for 50-50 to ensure that you're the one that gets the most overnights that year, because that's really who gets head of household. And I asked the question because I have to also fill out a form. Um, it's called the Paid Preparer's Due Diligence Form, um, Form 8867. And basically, I'm saying I asked all these questions, and I made certain that this person really has head of household. If they find out for whatever reason, you know, so say both parties do claim head of household for the same child, and the IRS investigates, if they determine that I was incorrect, I will be fined. And I also, after a certain period of time, could lose my license over this. So to me, I, you know, I am very, very careful on this. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of pushback because, you know, it, I'll get, you know, well, my divorce degree says we can do this. And I'll say, you can't. I mean, it really comes down to that the IRS says this. And I, I'm still... I still get the question a lot, even from very seasoned attorneys. Um, and I always want to say, Do you, haven't you seen my presentations? <laughs> yeah, I, I get this a lot from clients who they either go online or they speak to someone who has had a divorce and they say, you know, my friend takes the head of household or the depend. I want the dependency exemption. And a right. lot of people also, you know, before it even phased out, they were taking dependency exemptions, even though they didn't meet the income limits. So, I mean, there were so many issues around the dependency exemption that they would spend, you know, weeks arguing about who was going to get it. And, and then they didn't even know they couldn't take it anyway. So right. um, again, this is another reminder that we have to constantly be in contact with our accountant in drafting the agreements, finalizing the terms and having the client understand that they just can't take something because they want it. It has to be um, pursuant to the IRS rules, pursuant to an agreement, and what actually exists under those factual circumstances. And, now, and, I'll, be, and I'll be honest, there are a lot of accountants who get that head of household wrong too. I have right. a lot of um, you know, uh, arguments with the other spouse's accountant over this issue. 
and I have to go back and I have to pull out all the research and send it to them. And it, it ends up being pretty ugly because the accountant, you know, is angry because they don't look like they know what they're talking about at the end of all of this. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's pretty clear that people have fluffed this over and just gone by whatever somebody has told them, you know, yeah, 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 I have, I'm allowed to take it. So the accountant has put it on the return. But now since, you know, w with the IRS coming back at accountants for screwing up, you know, it's, it's become a dangerous area. Yeah. Well, before we conclude this podcast, there's some, there's a very important area I think we need to discuss, which relates to the 529 plans, because not only were there a few changes before um, everything happened with the schools and colleges, but now that colleges had to close early and perhaps parents received refunds, I think it's important to address the 529 plans. What changes have been made or what issues need to be addressed, Donna? So, uh, yes, a lot, of, a lot of kids that were sent home at, from spring break and never went back to school. Carolyn, I know yours, mine. Um, so, for sure, you know, parents had this issue that if you paid with a 529 plan, what do you do with the refund that has now come in for room and board? Um, so, you, if you keep it and you don't spend it on educational purposes, you're going to be taxed on it. So, the, you, you have several options that you need to um, do with it. And, you know, some time has passed now, but you had 60 days to put the receipts back in the, the 529 plan. And um, each plan is a little bit quirky. So you want to check with your plan administrator and see how you were supposed to put the money back. I know for mine, I just, you know, literally just had to write a check back in and deposit it, but then just, I don't count it as a 2020 contribution, but right. I didn't need to do anything else, but they said other plans really are different and some require you to fill out different paperwork and put it in differently. But all I had to do was deposit it. So I put it back in and, you know, I can now let it grow, continue to grow and be part of the 529 plan as it, as it should have been. Um, the second thing you can do is you can you can keep it and hold it in an account and just use it for tuition in the fall. So if you're planning to pay with a 529 plan, again, you just take out less from the 529 plan and write a check for the amount that you kept um, so that you're still using it for educational purposes. And it doesn't matter that it was sitting in your account for those couple months. You just have to use it in the same plan year. So you have to use it in 2020. So if you wait till next year and say, oh, I'm not gonna pay tuition for whatever reason until next year, my son's taking the fall semester off, it doesn't count. You have to put use it back in in the same year. So um, make sure you use any funds that you kept in 2020. The other thing you can do is go back, if say your child graduated and you're not gonna have somebody in school anymore, you're like, gosh, I got this, now I'm gonna be taxed on it. Go back through your receipts and see if there's anything that you can, um, deduct that you paid out of pocket. I know like it's constant. I feel like I'm opening my checkbook to pay extra things for um, right. the kids. So I definitely go back and look and see if there's anything that you could have used it for. And if the child's going to graduate school, you can use it for the graduate school the next year. And the last um, one is it, it's a new, um, it's a new rule that passed um, in December um, that says that you can use 529 plan money to pay back student loans for the beneficiary and their siblings. So for some reason, they took out a loan. You can use this money that you ha now have to pay either that child's or the child's brothers or sisters um, loans back if you just need to use the funds so you're not taxed on it. So it's definitely a way to, to keep from paying the taxes and use it for what it was intended for. 
And I think that's great advice too for the upcoming fall semester as schools begin to announce whether they're going to be opening or what conditions and whether they're going to be coming home early again. But it's good advice to kind of prepare um, parents who might be using 529 monies um, for the next semester that's coming up. Yeah, because we don't know if there's another outbreak, what they're going to do and their reactions are going to be. I think they're going to take all precautions and get the kids out again if something right. happens in the fall semester. Right. Well, I want to thank you for all of your great advice on the um, many hot tax topics that we that we discussed this morning. It's a lot of great information. And I would certainly encourage any of our listeners that might have uh, questions after this. We can, they can contact our office. They can also contact uh, Donna's office. Donna, uh, what number are you available as well? Um, yes, uh, yeah, for sure. You can contact me. Um, you can go on my website. Um, it's tfasllc.com. Um, and my number is 484-580-2127. Happy to answer any questions. Great. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Let's Talk Family Law. We hope you join us next month for another episode. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.